Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, detained and arrested for saving migrants in distress. We're going to hear from Nathan Akehurst, a British volunteer who was working on a search and rescue boat in the Mediterranean. They took on board 114 people who had been drifting for days in vessels without food, fuel and water. Well done them, you might think, but that wasn't a view shared by the Italian authorities. As the rescue ship, the CI4, was unloading its precious human cargo in the port of Salerno, it was impounded and the charity which owns it fined. We'll hear from Nathan in just a moment. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. We are the news outlet that exposed the Dan Wooden story when others chose to look the other way. That was part of a three-year investigation. So do support us if you can. Head over to bylinetimes.com to find out how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, Thank you very much indeed. Welcome then to Nathan Akehurst. And Nathan, before you tell us about the impounding of the vessel and the fine, just explain a little bit more about CI4 and what you were doing. Sure. So we're a civil search and rescue ship. Um, we are one of several belonging to organisations operating in the search and rescue zones in the central Mediterranean and prior to our being impounded last night, we'd been at sea for just under two weeks, responding to calls from boats in distress in the search and rescue zones in international waters surrounding Libya and Malta. And over the weekend, between the 17th and 19th of August, we responded to three boats in distress, 38 people on board each, many of whom had been drifting for days without food, fuel or water, brought them on board. There were some cases of severe medical emergencies. I genuinely believe that if we hadn't responded in the time that we did, some of the patients in particular may well not have survived. And after our first three rescues had been completed, we initially applied for a port of safety to disembark them in Malta, Malta refused in violation of their responsibility to protect, at which point we applied to the Italian Maritime Rescue Coordination Centre for a port of safety in Italy instead, and completed around 40 hours of sailing to the port we were assigned in Salerno, just south of Naples, where we disembarked our rescued people yesterday morning and then found out about the impounding decision late last night. Tell me about the condition of the people that you saved. I know you say that you fear that some of them might have died without your intervention. Four, I believe, were unconscious when you arrived at Salerno. So what kind of conditions were people suffering from? It's important to bear in mind that long before they boarded the boats, these are people who have lacked access to healthcare in some cases for many years, who've been in extremely fragile environments, some of whom may well be survivors of torture, of war, of various extreme conditions, and have a raft of pre-existing conditions. 
And I think it's also important to remember that this is not a normal situation for search and rescue crews. I think as a comparison anecdote, I was picked up once by a search and rescue boat off the coast of England after walking out along the coastline too long and getting stuck on the side of a cliff. And so normally search and rescue vessels are responding to people who've just got themselves in some trouble and not people who have been in the most extreme and dreadful of circumstances for years in some cases and then got into often unseaworthy boats and completely exposed to the elements in a scorching Mediterranean summer for several days. So as you say, we brought aboard four people that were unconscious. There was a bit of miscommunication from the people in the boat um, initially because one of those people who were unconscious had been unresponsive for almost a day. And so we were informed that there was a dead person on board. Very fortunately, this turned out not to be the case. And our onboard hospital were able to revive and stabilise the four people that we brought aboard. But almost everyone in fairly parlous medical state, we had heat stroke, a lot of cases of scabies and lice. And yeah, we had our medical team working way over time for a few days, seeing to people who, I stress again, hadn't had medical attention in some time and may well not receive appropriate healthcare in the future either. You as civilians were doing a job that people might expect the Italian equivalent of the RNLI to carry out, which I know is a charity, but nevertheless is a, an organisation trained to deal with rescues at sea. Or they might have assumed that one of the nation states that borders the Mediterranean might be operating some kind of coastal patrol. What was it left to you? Yes, that's completely right. These kind of operations should be the responsibility of states. The Italian Coast Guard do carry out some rescue work, but nowhere near enough. And in fairness to the Italians, it shouldn't be left entirely to them. It's a Europe-wide emergency, and the European Union has the resources, the operational ability, if it so choose. Indeed, it has in the past to carry out large-scale coordinated search and rescue missions. Reason that that is no longer the case is, in my view, entirely political rather than operational and the result of a deliberate decision to withdraw assets from the region in full awareness of the lives that will cost in order to bolster and continue a policy of making Europe as closed to people on the move as possible and yeah, building a kind of impregnable fortress, which has created the most deadly migration route on the planet in the central Mediterranean. On what basis was your ship impounded and a fine issued? You were there saving lives. So there's Italian law that has come about as of this year. The basic principle about it, without getting into too much of the legal complexity, is that boats are requested to apply for a port of safety immediately after their first rescue. So the kind of aim of this is that, say, you pick up 20 or 30 people and you have to remove yourself from the search and rescue zone as soon as possible and proceed to the nearest port without being able to help other people along the way. Again, the aim is to minimise the number of people coming to Europe, even if that costs lives in the process. This law is fairly new, but it's part of a long-running campaign against civil search and rescue in the central Mediterranean. 
some of your listeners might be aware of cases in the last four to five years in which search and rescue crews have been criminalized. There was one case last year that involves the bugging of a bridge of a rescue ship, the arrest of its crew, who faced the last five years of their lives in limbo with the trial date hanging over them, a trial which is still not yet concluded and may well not be for another several years. If it's bad for rescue crews, it's even worse for refugees themselves. Routinely, even refugees who take control of boats in desperate distress and try to steer them to safety are tried as smugglers and traffickers themselves. The architecture of anti-smuggling, anti-trafficking law has been retooled and manipulated to target both refugees themselves and rescue crews attempting to help them. But yeah, the basis upon which we're being supposedly detained is not applying for a port of safety immediately after our first rescue. At this point, we weren't even in the Italian search and rescue zone. We were in the Libyan and subsequently the Maltese one. And as I said before, we initially applied to Malta. When Malta refused us, it was only at that point that we needed to contact the Italian authorities. And as soon as we did, we complied with every instruction given to us. But if you had left the search and rescue area immediately, having saved the people in one vessel, 38 people, what would have happened to the people in the other two boats, the other 76? Well, as I say, it's unlikely they would have survived. And we were, I believe, the only search and rescue asset in that zone at that time. So in the same way that in the UK, politicians have been able to make capital out of the small boat crisis, as they describe it, in the English Channel, politicians in Italy and other Mediterranean countries appear to be making capital and talking tough and acting tough in the same way. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, and I think it runs deeper than that. I think there is a lot of exchange of learning and of kind of copycat action that happens between the US border, the Australian border, the European border and the British one. And often the same companies, the same contractors involved in border enforcement, the same consultants moving around providing strategic expertise and ways of doing things. Denmark, for example, at the moment, looking at their own version of the Rwanda plan that Britain's been become infamous for in the last year. So yeah, I'd say it's no coincidence that there's a kind of a sharing and a convergence of what I would describe fundamentally as an attempt to undermine and ultimately destroy the system of international humanitarian protection, which we inherit from the end of the Second World War and the desperate refugee crisis that followed it. I interviewed a rescuer a while back who was in exactly the position that you have described. He was facing potential prison time in Greece for having been involved in a search and rescue operation in the Mediterranean. And I think these are stories that are not widely known, not widely publicised in the UK, but highlight the danger that search and rescuers place themselves in, but also the antipathy towards pretty desperate people fleeing war, persecution, maybe even just, in inverted commas, grinding poverty. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's a lot of energy and attention goes into misdirecting and occluding away from the fundamental humanitarian tragedies of all of this. I think the vast majority of sensible right-thinking people would agree that no one should be left to die at sea, would agree that we have a 
responsibility and a duty to protect people from harm, from suffering, from death where we can. And I think that goes beyond people's political persuasions. But there is, as I say, an awful lot of political energy that goes into covering up and avoiding that simple truth. Yet there are criminal gangs who control these vessels, who take money from desperate people and set them afloat on the high seas in sometimes untrustworthy vessels. Do you accept the argument that by being involved in search and rescue, that you are helping to feed the market for this traffic in desperate humanity? No, I don't accept that at all. There's actually a pretty comprehensive study out recently that quantitatively debunks this migrant taxi service theory that's been a a far-right talking point for about six or seven years now. But I'd say two things. One is that the only reason that the smuggling gangs have markets to exploit in the first place is because there is a complete absence, a complete shutdown of safe routes of the ability to exercise one's rights to international protection, as I was talking about before, which causes people to exploit that situation. And the second thing I'll point to is the active collaboration of European authorities with Libya being one example, militias, partners, um, externalised border enforcement that are directly linked to smuggling operations themselves. So there are Western forces supporting militia groups in Libya who themselves are profiting from this miserable trade. Yes, there's an excellent piece in, I think, The New Humanitarian uh, recently about this. But the, the broader point is that the neat have your cake and eat it solution that Europe has come to is it's unable to completely go back on its own enshrined values and standards. But it figures that if it can outsource a lot of its dirty work, if you like, to countries along its borderline and pay for them to do the damage, then it's able to evade accountability for the human rights violations that occur in response. There's a fairly grim joke that sometimes does the rounds in civil search and rescue that the so-called Libyan Coast Guard is the country's only functioning state institution. This is a country that doesn't exercise a monopoly on violence within its own borders in any meaningful sense or provide much in the way of any kind of state services whatsoever and yet has this incredibly violent and incredibly efficient and well-armed and well-organized militia patrolling its coast and conducting as i say pretty violent operations every day including shooting at boats or into the water around them dragging people back to places where they have fled because they've been sold into slavery tortured similar and all of this is financed through Italy in particular and EU mechanisms more broadly. You did have a boat named after a young boy who died at sea. His body was found washed up. His family were heading for Greece. That young boy's name was Alan Curdy. And there was a CI boat named in his honour, which did carry out successful rescue missions. I think you saved 927 people in distress over 12 different missions on the boat named after Alan Curdy. But you've had to sell that boat because of the circumstances in which you now find yourself with CI4, because you were fined for breaking regulations. Yeah, so there's been a shift, I think, from the Italian authorities in the last few years. And earlier when I was talking about the high profile arrests of search and rescue captains and heads of mission and crews, 
that caused a lot of outcry in the press and it was ultimately legally non-viable and it consumed a lot of political and legal energy which ultimately wasn't an efficient use of their resources and so the kind of somewhat cleverer and in some ways more damaging strategy that they've now adopted is a kind of more death by a thousand cuts approach where things like this continue to happen where you know you impound the boat for 20 days you remove it from being able to operate you cost a lot of lives in doing so you hamstring both operationally and financially the abilities of civil search and rescue to do its job properly to save lives at sea and you avoid some of the negative attention that has come to authorities that have been somewhat more kind of publicly aggressive in their attacks on rescuers in the last few years. Will you get this boat back, do you think, the CI4? Well, yeah, I mean, if all goes according to plan, it will be in our hands again in 20 days and able to leave. But as I say, that's 20 days in which, well, we were, as I was saying before, the only boat on patrol in the search and rescue zone where we were over the weekend that continues to be the case that's 20 days in a peak season for attempted crossings in which over 2,000 people have already died this year and those those are 20 days that we won't get back before we finish Nathan can I just ask about you a personal question what motivates you to put your own life at risk by seeking to save the lives of others in the Mediterranean there could be a whole range of potential answers to this, but I think it's, as I was saying before, ultimately very simple. This work should be being done by far more well-organised, far more competent authorities. It shouldn't be being left to volunteers, but it is, and somebody's got to do it, so it may as well be me. Nathan, thank you very much indeed. That's Nathan Akehurst from the CI Charity, whose boat has been detained. They now face a fine as well. Is that a fine on the charity, let me just clarify, Nathan, or a fine on the captain? How does that system work? That's a fine for CI to pay, yes. So CI is a charity which obviously tries to raise money, then Mm. sees some of those donations going to the Italian authorities for simply fulfilling its mission of trying to save people at risk at the sea. You can check out their website, by the way, c-i.org, if you want to find out more about them. Nathan, thank you very much indeed for your time. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. And we are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, just bringing you stories that you really won't see and hear in the mainstream media. And I think this is definitely one of them. If you want to support our work, don't forget to take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Get full details over at bylinetimes.com. We'll be back again very soon. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Cheers. Cheers.